0: Thank you for tuning into Holistic Finance, where we promote financial balance and financial health. Our mission is to simplify your finances so you can focus on your practice and enjoy life. Now here are your hosts, Ryan Burklow and Alex Collins.
1: Welcome back to Holistic Finance. I am your host Ryan Burklow, with me as always is Alexander Collins. In the last in the last episode, Alex, we're talking about asset allocation, right?
2: Yeah, we are. Um, And so today, we're going to dive just a little bit deeper into it. Um, So, like, if we think about asset allocation as an onion, an onion's got a whole bunch of different layers to it, right? Um, So we were talking really kind of macro last time in terms of like, okay, from a basic standpoint, asset allocation is the mix of stocks, bonds. real estate and cash that you own inside of your investment portfolio and today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into uh what that actually means and and what like how to go about building out a portfolio we're not going to get into the hows we're not going to get into the whys but we're just going to talk about the next layer down of of what makes up you know your portfolio
1: so let's let's dive right in. Let's start talking about stocks. So let's define stock real quickly. And then let's dive into a little bit of the weeds around what the asset class, maybe the stock sits in. So let's define stock. Sure.
2: Uh, stock is ownership of a company. For the vast majority of us, when we own stock, we own a publicly traded company. What that means is that there is a ready-made market for that company and it is traded on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange. And so there's hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, or maybe even millions of
1: people buying and selling this company on
2: a daily basis.
1: So we've got ownership in a company essentially, and obviously when the company's doing well, right? Revenue standpoint, typically the stock goes up. Yes, typically.
2: And it's the value of a stock is the sum total of all known information at a given time. And so long-term, Stock prices are going to be driven by the fundamentals of the company. How well is it run? How profitable is it? What, what is, how much earnings are we able to go ahead and get? How much future earnings are we able to get from that stock? Now, over short periods of time, emotions and feelings and expectations play a huge role in what the value of a stock is over a short period of time. Now, as we talked about last time, Short time horizons are speculation, not investing. We want to go ahead and be investors. We want to invest for the long time, the long term, and therefore we're looking at things really through trying to to eliminate emotion from our decision-making process and have it be as much as possible based on the underlying
1: fundamentals. So let's talk about the the different asset classes, if you will, around stocks right so most people don't put all of their eggs in one basket and choose one company to invest in for everything now, correct that doesn't mean that doesn't exist but again most people don't do that so their portfolio or their allocation is made up of several stocks if not thousands of stocks right so correct. what are these what are these asset asset classes that i keep talking about Sure. So inside of
2: stocks, we almost have to break it down into uh, three different categories to start with. Uh, The first is going to be domestic companies, companies that are uh, here in the U.S. that they they are American companies. The the second is international companies, Um, and when we talk about international, we separate international into two different distinct classes or categories. Uh, One is developed nations. And here we're thinking about places like uh, Japan, Europe, etc. And then the second category is what's called emerging markets, and these are places where uh, we're seeing the economy industrialize or be transformed. Uh, it's oftentimes where you'll, you'll hear the term uh, third world nation or second world nation, um, and they're in transition to becoming a first world nation. Um, they are a developing market. They are emerging as a market, as a country. Um, and so the reason why we separate these out is, is one, when we're investing domestically, it, it, there's, it's easier to know information about a domestic company than it is about an international company. Uh, the second component is with an international co- company, there is another component that goes into return, and that is exchange rate. So, if you're buying, uh, let's just use Europe as the example, uh, or Japan. If you're buying a Japanese company, you have to exchange dollars into yen and then buy the Japanese company. And so you have. Uh, a, a secondary thing that's going to affect the performance. It's not just going to be the performance of the company, but it's also
1: going to be the performance of the dollar versus the yen.
2: So that's what so we've this. got.
1: We've got three different classes there that you just went into domestic, international, let's just call it emerging markets. Right. So we've got mm-hmm. those three, but then we've got a whole nother sector or not even a whole nother sector, se- several <laughs> sectors around. You've got, well, I'll let you start going through this. this is your this is your baby. Sure. Um, so you mentioned sectors, and we'll we'll get
2: to sectors in a minute. Um, but inside of a domestic, we further break stocks down. It, you, typically this is done in more of like a, a matrix um, but and we've got two different things that we're looking at. One is value versus growth. Growth. The, value, the underlying value of the company is based upon the expectations of future growth, and with a growth company, typically we have higher price-to-earnings ratios, so we're expecting more growth in the earnings of the company in the future. Value... Typically, there's kind of two different types of value companies. One is it's more slow and steady, um, and the the true value of the underlying stock, the the capitalization or the the amount of money that the stock is worth, is really based on the tangible assets. And we're not necessarily expecting huge growth from the the returns. It's just a. You know, You'll hear the term blue chip thrown around, uh, but it's a very stable company that is just kind of the takes the the tortoise approach where it's slow and steady wins the race. Uh, the other type of value company is a company that that the uh, the value of the stock is depressed and, and there's a host of different reasons why this could be occurring uh, but you're having to pay less for a dollar's worth of earnings uh, because, there isn't this expectation of growth, um, or there's there's something wrong with the company. It, it has uh, an issue in the marketplace. It has uh, a management issue, something of that nature. Um, and as a result, you're able to buy it at a discount. So those are that's one set of parameters. The other set of parameters is the size of the company. Is it a large company worth $10 billion or more? Is it a mid-sized company worth between 2 and $10 billion? Or is it a small company worth under $2 billion? We're not talking about the small business that is down the street. Like These are still huge companies, and they're still traded on exchanges. So they're they're not, you know, Joe's down the street, but they are worth $2 billion
1: or less. So you've got large and small. You've got value and growth. From a risk standpoint, typically the smaller companies are riskier because how many companies don't make it? Well, A, don't make it in general. And then B, right? Like Apple wasn't always Apple. Right. Right. Like think of Apple in the early 80s compared to what it is today. Well, and for every
2: company that became Apple or Microsoft or insert example here, I mean, Walmart, for every company that, that became big and well-known across the country. There are hundreds, if not thousands of examples of companies that either didn't make it or fizzled or were a flash in the pan um, and, and never really wound up
1: becoming a big household name. Exactly. So it, small tends to be riskier. Now, to to let's be 100% transparent here stocks and bonds, I mean, everything we're about to talk about today, there's some risk associated with that, but stocks are more riskier than, say, typically government bonds.
2: Yeah, and we'll get into defining bonds here in just a minute. Um, that'll help with this conversation. Um, yes, typically bond or stocks are more aggressive or more volatile than, than bonds. Um, the, the primary way in which we measure risk is in the amount of volatility, like how much variation is there in the returns. If something is going to give you the same return year in and year out, regardless of market conditions, regardless of the news, regardless of what's going on from an economic standpoint, um, then that like, there's not a whole lot of risk associated with it. Um it, now that that could be a really good thing that like, that could be not a good thing it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish and and like okay how much return are we getting uh from that stable asset you know if we found a stable asset that's returning you know 8% each and every year like giddy up I'll take that all day long if we're talking about something that's going to provide a stable return at 1% well, I'm less excited about that Right. So it, it, it's it's all relative. Um, you know, one of the favorite phrases that uh, that you you seem to like uh, grilling
1: me over is it, it depends. I'm buying you those diapers. <laughs> um, so so that's stocks and on a a little bit granular, a little bit more green, more granular label uh, level. There are several other things that we could talk about that. You know, let's just face it. That'll take us down so many different rabbit holes. We're not going to go there today. So let's start talking about, let's talk about bonds here. And the way, the way that we look at bonds, right there, there's corporate bonds, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? There's government bonds. Mm -hmm. And let's just, I guess this, I know there's several other types of bonds here, but let's just pause with those two. In general, the bonds, it's debt.
2: Yes. When, when you're buying a bond what you're doing is you're essentially buying an IOU. You're saying, okay, I'm going to give you, and typically the example that's used is $10,000. I'm going to give you $10,000. And every year for the next five years, 10 years, whatever the length of time that that bond is, is open for, you're going to provide me a coupon payment some interest paid typically semi-annually for me owning that bond. Essentially, you're paying me interest twice a year to borrow the money from me. So, if we've got a $10,000 bond and we've got uh, a 5% interest rate, I give you 10 grand, you're going to go ahead and give me 500 bucks a year, every year until the bond matures. When the bond matures, you're going to give me my 10 grand back. It's really relatively simple. Uh, That's one type of bond. The second type of bond is what's called a zero coupon bond, meaning that I'm going to give you, say, $6,000. You're not going to give me a dime until the bond matures. And when the bond matures, you're going to give me whatever the face value of that bond is, call it $10,000. So the way in which I wind up having appreciation is in that particular example, I have $4,000 of appreciation over whatever the time period is. Well, let's just call it 20 years. And so now over 20 years, I originally paid you six grand I'm getting 10 grand back so I gained $4,000 over a 20 year time period
1: now most people use bonds in terms of lowering their risk in ter- in their portfolio right like if stocks are riskier bonds are less risky so when you have you know 60% of your money sitting in stocks and 40% of your bonds in bonds, that means you're not taking as much risk. Say if all of your money was sitting in stocks, like that's kind of the the overall thought around having stocks and bonds mixed inside of your portfolio. That that's one thought.
2: Uh, and another thought that goes along with it uh, is this concept of of correlation. And what that is is that if we've got uh, two assets that work in opposite directions, given market conditions. By combining them, we can have a better expected outcome and less volatility. Uh, we're we're going to wind up with um, the 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 expectation is going to be just equal to the the concept or the the average of the two of them. But when one of them is down, the other one's going to be up. When one of them is up, the other one's going to be down, and so it's going to basically reduce down the amount of risk that we're taking, and ultimately it should make it easier to to reach whatever our expectation
1: is for our returns.
2: So there's, so, there's an advantage by having
1: assets that move in different directions that work differently from each other. So let's talk about you know the, the bond prices, if you will. What affects the bond prices to go up and down? Because bonds are not Right, They can go up and down just like your stocks. So what what causes that to occur?
2: Uh, Essentially, there are two main components to uh, pricing for bonds. And these are the two risks that are associated with bonds. One is interest rates, and the other is credit quality. So if we've got that zero coupon bond where... I gave you six grand and in 20 years, you're giving me back 10 grand. The question becomes, okay, how likely am I to get my 10 grand in 20 years? If the answer is, well, it's rock solid, I'm guaranteed, and it's backed by the full faith and credit of uh, the U.S. federal government, and I I have high degree of confidence in the U.S. federal government, then I don't have a whole lot of risk. there's there's not much credit risk or there's not much risk of the federal government not giving me my 10 grand in 20 years. So that's one type of risk. The other type of risk is interest rate risk. And if we go back to the other example of I give you 10 grand and you're going to pay me $500 a year for 20 years, and then you're going to give me my 10 grand back at the end of that time period well, I still have the risk of you defaulting and not giving me me my 10 grand back, right? Yep. The second risk that I have is what happens if interest rates go up? If interest rates go up and now let's say the interest rates are 6% as opposed to 5%, well, now I've lost out on 1% per
1: the
2: entire time period, right?
1: Correct. And if I so, wanted to, if you wanted to trade that bond, why would someone pay you more if they can go buy another bond that pays them 6%? So what exactly. does that do to the price? What does that do to the price of that bond that you currently own?
2: The existing bond price is going to fall to exactly. make the, the yield of the bond over that time period
1: the same as the bond that you can go buy for 6%. Correct. And then there's the maturity side of this, right? So how long does it take you to get your and your calculation or your numbers to $10,000 back, right? Exactly. So the, the longer the maturity,
2: and then there's a, a financial term called duration, which is basically a time-weighted average of when you receive your money back. The longer the maturity, the longer the duration, the more volatile that bond is going to be compared to interest rates. And if we think about this, this intuitively makes sense. Like, okay, if I give up 1%, markets now giving me a 6% interest rate. I have a bond that's 5%. I've lost 1%. If I lose that for a short period of time, not that big a deal. If I lose that for a long period of time, ouch. Bigger deal. Yeah, much bigger deal. So the, the more, the longer the duration, the more impact a move in interest rates is going to have. And that's true, both positive and negative existing bond prices and interest rates work inversely proportional to each other, meaning that as interest rates go up, existing bond prices go down. And as, uh, interest rates go down, existing bond prices go up.
1: So now that we've got a good understanding of, you know, how stocks typically operate and you know, large versus small, value versus growth, and now we've got bonds and how th- there are different forms of bonds and then we've got the how the bond pricing is affected. How does this come into play? Like what are the takeaways from this allocation, right? They're, like most people are sitting there thinking, okay, I have stocks and bonds, but I also have mutual funds, or I might have ETFs. Like, where does this, where does this all come into play here, Alex?
2: Sure. So again, from from that onion level, the next layer down, the the mix of assets that we're trying to take a look at, are the asset allocation, we're going to want to try and balance an appropriate amount of risk for uh, an individual. And we're going to do that by trying to have a diversified portfolio. We want to have some exposure to international. We want to have some exposure to emerging markets. We also don't want to be concentrated in uh, all large cap and not have any mid or small. Uh, Conversely, we don't want to have all small and not have any mid or large. We want to have a diversified portfolio. And that's across all of these different components You know, one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning here was sectors. We also don't want to be too heavy into any one particular sector. Uh, The sectors are the areas of the economy, uh, technology, consumer goods, transportation, uh, communications, uh, things of that nature. Um, And so we don't want to go ahead and be uh, too heavily involved in just tech. Uh, because, you know, if we wind up going through another tech bubble bursting, you know, now our entire portfolio got taken down simply because we didn't have anything in the financial sector or the housing sector. Um, so we, we want to be we don't want to be over reliant upon any one particular sector. Um, and, and the more that we can go ahead and create this diverse mix of assets where some of them are going to be going up, even when others are going down, it's going to help hedge our bets and get us a more consistent return, which is largely what most folks are after.
1: Yeah, it's less of a roller coaster ride. And just from experience, when we are typically looking at the portfolios out there, we tend to see one asset class, that being large growth, where when we look at someone's portfolio, 50% or more might be sitting in that one asset class. And then when you look at, and it might be, who they may not even realize that of that asset class, maybe 25% is invested in one company. Because when you have a mutual fund, you're invested in several different companies inside of that fund. And if you have more than one mutual fund, how do you know which mutual fund is invested in what company and what concentration do you have?
2: Yeah. I mean, th- these are, you know, issues that we take a look at all the time where, um, you know, someone might say, oh, I'm diversified. I've got, you know, four different funds. OK, well, if those four funds only own, say, 25 stocks and there's a 100 percent overlap between those four funds, like, OK, awesome. You've got four funds and you thought you were diversified, but you really only have 25 different unique holdings. So, we want to really take a look at how many unique holdings you have and how much overlap there is between the different funds that you're using. And then understand okay, how does this break down into large, medium, small, value versus growth, domestic versus international versus emerging markets? How does this all come together? And then take a look at like, okay, how highly correlated are these assets? Now, how much do they move in lockstep with each other? when things go well or when things go bad that will tell us how much how much
1: protection we have from volatility right and this is the true risk exposure that most people you know you don't a you didn't go to school to learn about this b right there's so much information out there it's hard to put this all together and then c do you have the tools and capability to look at everything we just said inside of your portfolio and so these are, in, these are pieces to look at when you're looking at your current allocation, what is it made up of, right? What does that mean and what does that mean for risk?
2: Right. Um, now, you know, something that you mentioned a minute ago here, Ryan, was uh, some of the different ways in which we can hold these different securities. Uh, you, specifically, you'd mentioned uh, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, and if I remember right, REITs, Correct.
1: Yes, so real estate investment, yeah,
2: right. Uh, a REIT is a real estate investment trust. It's a, a at least somewhat diversified portfolio of uh, real estate holdings. Um, there, there's some unique things to that deal with REITs. They can be traded or non-traded. We're not going to go into those details today. Uh, mutual funds. Uh, there's really kind of a couple different types of mutual funds. There. Uh, there's passive. Uh, passively managed funds there's actively managed funds and there's index funds um indexes are designed to track a specific index like the s&p 500 or the dow jones or the wilshire 5000 or the russell 1000 or you know some index um and a mutual fund is a a structure It, it isn't uh, it isn't a, uh, an, an investment in and of itself. It holds a bunch of underlying investments, um, and, and uh, that mix of assets changes. Uh, an exchange-traded fund or an ETF is a static or mostly static portfolio. Uh, there, the cost to manage these things is typically significantly less. Uh, because it's much more static. Um, and so you're you're buying a presupposed bag of goods. Um, and again, depending upon what your ultimate strategy is, uh, there's reasons why you'd want to have mutual funds. There's reasons why you'd want to have uh, exchange-traded funds. Uh, they aren't necessarily good or bad in and of themselves. Uh, there are different tax consequences as a result of owning each one of them. Um, and, and there's different uh, cost structures associated with each one of them. Again, it's not necessarily good or bad in and of itself. Uh, it's all about how you go about using it and what you're trying to accomplish with it.
1: We've said a lot in today's episode. <laughs> I'm a little worried that we said too much. The The main, the takeaway that we really want you to have here is what are you invested in and have you invested in, in terms of the portfolio and allocation, have you really looked at it from a standpoint of the risk exposure that you currently have? And are you concentrated in one particular area? Yeah, That allows, like when you understand all of that, it allows you to not be as emotional with your investments and stay the course. It allows you to have an understanding or a philosophy around it that helps it helps you be more robotic, if you will. And it's not that we want you to be robots, but when you're consistent and the emotions don't come into play, that helps in so many different areas in in investing. So it's much it's much easier to do the right thing when you take that approach towards it. Exactly. We hope you receive value out of today's episode. If you have any questions or if you have a topic that you would like for us to speak about on the podcast, make sure you head to holistic-finance.com. And at the bottom of that page, there's a way for you to engage with us there. If you're active on social media, you can find our Facebook page at holisticfinanceqfp. QFP. We tend to be active there. And as always, we hope that you have a good rest of your day and make it a great day.
0: Guardian and subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Diversification does not guarantee profit or protect against market loss. Indices are unmanaged, and one cannot invest directly in an index. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Ryan and registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities LLC. OSJ 333 North Indian Hill Boulevard, Claremont, California 91711 909 1100 Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of